Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 14. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let's say amen together, church. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joe. Well, let's turn together, church, to the passage just read, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, as we continue our series, Vanity Fair. And we're looking today at verses 1 through 14 of chapter 7. So that's our passage for today, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. As you're turning there, as you're preparing to hear from God's word, let me just read a a line, some lyrics from a song that you probably recognize. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bride copper kettles and warm woolen mittens, brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Y'all heard that before? Sound of Music, Julie Andrews, great movie. Cream colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells, and schnitzel with noodles. Not my favorite thing, but okay. Wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings, these are a few of my favorite things. Very memorable song and a memorable movie as as Julie Andrews is singing and dancing around the mountains of Austria. And I I was thinking about that this week because I I was thinking like, what if Solomon wrote a song like this? (laughs) From the book of Ecclesiastes. He'd probably be singing about death and vanity instead of raindrops on roses, right? He'd probably be singing about wisdom and the fear of the Lord instead of whiskers on kittens. It's not exactly, Ecclesiastes is not exactly the making of a musical or a Hollywood blockbuster, right? 
And, you know, this is Ecclesiastes. And you might say this is real life, <laughs> what he writes about. Solomon pulls no punches in this book. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He doesn't allow for platitudes. Not even the platitudes that he wrote earlier in life in the book of Proverbs. And so that gives Ecclesiastes, this book, a kind of gritty realism. And I think that's why I like this book so much. And yet behind that grittiness are some valuable principles on how we should live our lives and how we should relate to God. And that's what this message is about. I've got seven points in my message this morning. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. <laughs> Write these down. It's all gas, no break this morning, church. Seven principles from Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Here's how I want to frame this. I want to give you seven better than pursuits in your life. Seven better than pursuits. Write them down. Here's the first. Pursue this, Harvest Decatur. Pursue a good reputation, number one. Solomon says in verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. Now the Hebrew in verse one is just beautiful. Okay, I want to read it for you. It goes like this, tov shame, meshem and tov. Tov shame, meshem and tov. Can you hear the play on words there? Shame is the word for name or reputation. Shemin is the word for oil. So a good shame is better than a good shemin. A good name is better than good oil or precious ointment as the ESV renders it here. And as you, you hear that, you might say to yourself, well, of course a name is better than oil. Who cares about oil? Well, hold on now. We're talking about Solomon's day. And in Solomon's day, in the dusty world of ancient Israel, Oil, especially good smelling oil, was very valuable. It was a very valuable commodity. It made you smell good. It made you attractive to the opposite sex. It made you, especially when you don't bathe every day in a culture like that, it made you smell good, look good, attractive to other people. And being attractive to other people was really important back then. It still is important in our day. It's just that we rely on different stuff. We rely on good clothes and a good hairstyle and a good car that we drive. And here's the principle. Okay, here's how the principle works. A good name, everybody listening? A good name, a good reputation is better than looking good or smelling good. You want that more. You want that more. than, And, and you want that, notice the allusion to death all throughout this passage, but especially verse 1, 2, 3, 4, especially as you get closer to the grave, looking good doesn't matter as much as it used to. Don't amen that. We all know it's true. And you want instead a good name. You know, you don't want people to say when you die and they, they look at your grave, here lies that profligate. Here lies that greedy miser. Here's, here lies that selfish woman. Here lies an intolerable man that nobody... Nobody liked. Nobody wants that said at their funeral. Nobody wants that said over their grave. You want people to say things like this. Here lies Tony Caffey. He was a good man. Didn't always smell good. <laughs> Didn't always drive the nicest car. But he was a good man. He loved his wife. He loved his son. 
He loved his church. He loved the Lord. That's what I once said at my funeral. Proverbs 22, verse 1, a good name, a good reputation is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. Now look at the end of verse 1. We've got to be careful with how this passage ends. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. The day of birth is a happy day, and I, I hope you enjoy your birthdays. This is not exhortation to be depressed on your birthday, okay? It's okay to be happy on your birthday, but it's not as good as the day of death because the day of death, you know, assuming you have a good name means at your death that you finish the race well and you ended well. You know, a child who's just born hadn't done anything, right? I mean, we have baby dedication. We show the, there's nothing to say about the baby other than that baby's cute. Baby hadn't done anything. His, her whole life is in front of that baby. We talk to the parents. We challenge the parents at baby dedication. And we pray for the baby, right? It's different at your funeral. By the time you make it to your funeral, we know some stuff about you. And we can say some stuff. And according to Solomon, that's better. It's better. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that the day of your birth is bad. It doesn't mean that birthdays are bad. It just means, I mean, what do you feel as you age, as you get older, viscerally. The fallenness of this world starts to weigh on you. And you start anticipating eternity. And maybe if you're young, you don't really understand this, but you get older, you start to understand it. Yeah, birthdays are good, but I'm ready for eternity. I think typologically, we can also acknowledge that Jesus' death was more important than his birth. Right? That's an important thing to remember at Christmas time. Calvary is better than Bethlehem. Y'all know that? Calvary makes Bethlehem significant. And if Jesus didn't die for our sins, if he didn't pay for our sins on the cross and then was raised from the dead, there'd be nothing to celebrate at Christmas time. I hope you celebrate Christ at Christmas time. It's coming. But I want you to know, there'd be, no, there's no, there'd be no reason to celebrate Christmas if it wasn't for Good Friday, if it wasn't for Easter. And you know what? I've said this before. That's even true as you look at the New Testament. Only two Gospels in the New Testament reference Jesus' birth, Matthew and Luke. All four Gospels climax with Jesus' death. And I would say that Scripture climaxes all of scripture with the great atonement for our sin, Jesus dying on the cross. Death, the day of his death, is better than his birth. I'll give you an even better day. The day he comes back will be better than both. Can't wait for that. Speaking of death, write this down as number two. Here's the second better than pursuit. In your life, a reckoning with death. Not just a good reputation, but a reckoning with death. Solomon says in verse 2, and this is pretty seamless with verse 1, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. In the words of Matthew Henry, the great Bible commentary, a funeral is better than a festival. A funeral is better than a festival. Do you agree with that, church? Would, would you rather go to a funeral than a party? I don't know if I would. Why is that better? 
know, there was a lot of festivities and feasting at the cafe house this last week as we celebrated Thanksgiving. We ate, we played games, we played basketball, of course, it's a cafe reunion. We played spades, we sang silly songs at Thanksgiving, we played big booty together. Y'all know that game? It's a lot of fun. My brother was hilarious. My sister was a lot of fun. My nieces and my nephew were bouncing off the walls. My brother and I were bouncing off the walls. We had a lot of fun at Thanksgiving. Maybe you had a similar experience this Thanksgiving. A time of feasting, a time with family, a time of fun. How, Pastor Tony, could a funeral be better than that? Seriously. How could a house of mourning be better than a house of feasting? Here's how. Here's how. Because a house of mourning prepares you for the ultimate reality of your life, and that's your death. It's not that the house of feasting is bad. I love to eat. By the way, I love thanks- Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. It really is. I love it. Food, family, football. What could be better than that? But the reason that a house of mourning is better is because it prepares you for death. You know, if every day was Thanksgiving, if every day was just a party, then, then we'd think, like the great theologian, John Bon Jovi, <laughs> that heaven is a place on earth, and is not. It's not. When we go to a house of mourning, we see that life is short. When we go to a funeral, when we see someone in a coffin, it's, it's really helpful to see someone in a box, because you think in that moment, I'm going to be in that box someday. What do I want my life to count for? What, what do I want to happen between now and the box? Right? Sonny and I, when, when Alistair was young, we had these friends that were a little older than us, and they had kids just a little older than Alistair. And they had a, a death in their family. It was their great uncle or something like that. And... So I asked the dad, I was like, are you going to go to the funeral? Are you going to take your kids to the funeral? That's what I really want to know. Are you going to take your kids to the funeral? And he says, absolutely I am. And he said, you know, my kids need to see uncle so-and-so whom they loved and whom they knew. They need to see him in a box. And they need to be aware that that's the ultimate fate that awaits them. And, you know, that's kind of shocking, isn't it, for parents to say that? But, you know, when they told me that, I I almost immediately agreed with them, almost immediately, how good that is. Because I think, especially for young people in today's world, you know, they're they're anesthetized to to death. I mean, they don't have to kill their own animals to eat them. They just pick them up at Walmart, you know, their food or Kroger. They don't see siblings of theirs die early in life, and I'm glad for that. I'm glad the infant mortality rate isn't what it was 150 years ago. But, you know, I I think there's this tendency among parents, especially, to just guard your kids from death. Don't let them see it. Don't let them deal with it. And then they grow up and they they dress, you know, and embrace goth. You know, I don't don't even know what that's about. Maybe it's because they haven't reckoned with what's going on with death, the reality of death. And then with funerals, too. By the way, a church should be active in funerals. Churches should help people grieve. And churches should help point people towards eternity with a thing called a funeral. It's good. Or a memorial service. You can call it whatever you want. And, you know, I think we try to protect kids from that, too. Because sometimes we embrace, you know, 
burning bodies and putting them in urns or we do things like liquefaction if you've ever heard of that where you liquefy your body and then just spill it out somewhere and and if you've chosen that means of removal of your body someday when you die i'm not here to criticize that i'm just saying that your kids need to be aware of death they need to be exposed to death they need to realize their own mortality and what's awaiting them and a good funeral can help with that not crazy talk about now you know another angel gets its wings or something crazy like that it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart everybody see that in verse two your kids need to lay it to heart when you hide your kids from death or the reality of death you do them a disservice can i tell you something else too adults When you hide yourself from the reality of death, you do yourself a disservice. You know, what what do we like to say? You know, 40 is the new 30. 50 is the new 40. Okay, well, nobody ever tells you that if you're 50, you're closer to death than you were when you're 40, okay? That's not on, you know, the magazine at the supermarket. 50, turn 50, closer to death than you used to be. Nobody would buy that magazine. You know, when I was, this last week at Thanksgiving, my, my little brother just turned 40. And he was kind of having a hard time with that, you know, because he turned 40. And I said, little brother, don't worry. I'm closer to death than you are. We're both headed towards death, but I'm going to get there faster than you. Isn't that encouraging? I'm a good big brother. I'd like to encourage him. He wasn't encouraged. And I'm not, listen, I'm not saying these things. Solomon's not saying these things to trivialize death. Or to trivialize life. It's actually the opposite. When you ignore death and when you don't take death seriously, that's when you trivialize life. When you come to terms with death, when you reckon with your own mortality, then life becomes precious and meaningful and you don't waste your days with constant feasting and merriment. Right? The great Scottish pastor Thomas Boston, he wrote that a believer's death is better than his birth. Why? Because in the days of his birth, he was born to die. But in the days of his death, he dies to live. Your day of death is better than your day of birth, Harvest Decatur, because the day of your birth, you were born to die. But in the day of your death, you die to live for eternity. It's better. Write this down as number three. Here's a third better than pursuit in your life. A serious mindset. A serious mindset. Solomon says in verse three, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now verse three, just so you know, this is a very difficult verse to translate and understand. And I'm, I don't do this a lot, but I'm, I'm going to disagree with how the ESV renders this passage. Okay. I think a better translation is this. Vexation is better than laughter. For by badness of face, the heart is made good. Everybody hear that? Let me say it again. Vexation, vexation is better than laughter. For by badness of face, the heart is made good. The idea here, and I think it's true to life, is that Hard times 
And difficulties shape you. And they build character. And they make you the man and the woman that you are today. Not the good times of life. It's the hard times of life. I bet if we took a poll right now and I asked you, what were the most significant, heart-shaping, transformational moments in your life? I bet you as we polled this congregation... None of you would say, oh, it was my eighth birthday party. My dad, he he brought a pony. I got to ride a pony. Best day of my life. None of y'all would say that. You probably don't even remember your eighth birthday party. You know what you would say? You would say, it was the day my dad died, Pastor Tony. It was the day my kid got sick. It was the day I got sick. It was when I went through that hard time it was when I went through that divorce it was when I thought I was going to die it's when my my dreams got dashed against the rocks and God used that hard time to shape me and to make me into the person that I am today that's the idea here the idea here is that vexation or sorrow or frustration evil even is better than laughter because it's those bad things in life that make you great God's more committed to your greatness than you are. We'd always take the easy road, wouldn't we? God's more committed to it than we are. And the thing about hard times, and this is just something to remind ourselves about periodically, hard times, they either make you bitter or they make you better. What a difference one letter makes. Hard times either make you bitter or they make you better. Look at verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Don't get me wrong here. Just full transparency this morning. I love mirth. I love jokes. I love to laugh. I'm like those crazy old guys on Mary Poppins. We love to laugh. (laughs) They're like floating up in the air. That's me. I, I love to laugh. I'm, you know, Solomon... Solomon says earlier in Ecclesiastes 3 that there's a time to laugh and there's a time to weep. You've got to know the difference. Solomon says in Proverbs, a joyful heart is good medicine. Right? So, I mean, I unapologetically laugh and tell jokes. I'm the one always cracking jokes at elders meetings. I am. George gives me the stink eye sometimes, like, all right, Pastor Tony, <laughs> calm down. Actually, it's not George. George likes jokes. It's Paul Roberts. He gives me the stink eye. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with laughter. Y'all hear me on this? There's nothing wrong with joke telling. There's nothing wrong with jocularity. I actually don't trust people who are always serious and can't have a good time. But if that's all your life consists of, If that's all you know how to pursue is laughter and merriment and jolliness, then you're a fool. Because life is hard. And there are times to be serious. And there are times to commiserate with people who are hurting. And if you don't know how to do that, you're a fool. Let's keep going. God doesn't want us to just laugh our lives away. Remember that. 
Here's a fourth better than pursuit. A teachable heart. A teachable heart. Solomon says in verse five, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs, this is very similar to Proverbs. He said, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Everybody see that on the screen? Be that kind of person that heeds instruction. Even as a young man, Paul, I think Solomon wrote Proverbs to young men primarily, young women too. Solomon said this as well. In Proverbs, he says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Don't get mad at me. Solomon said it. <laughs> Solomon's dad, King David, he said something similar in the book of Psalms. He said this. He said, let, he said, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Remember after his shameful incident with Bathsheba when he seduced a married woman? Nathan came to him and rebuked him to his face. And David, you know what David did? David wilted like a flower. He took it like a man. And he owned his sin and he repented. He took that rebuke like a man. And that's not always fun. But he received it. And there's an assumption built into verse 5 that's really important. It's not just a rebuke for rebuke's sake. So don't just go out there and just rebuke each other just for fun. That's not the point here. It's not the rebuke of an authority figure. It's not the rebuke of some important person. It's not the rebuke of some prominent person. It's the rebuke of the wise. Something wisely considered. It's the rebuke of someone who knows the Lord and fears the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's got to start from that. It's got to be generated from that. The fear of the Lord. That's where wisdom flows in a rebuke. We have a parallel text in the New Testament. Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed, really? So it's supposed to lift me up and encourage me every day, every day, every day, every day. Actually, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Oh, I don't like that. That, why? That the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of the roles of Scripture is to rebuke us. It's to reprove us. It's to make us stronger. And the preacher of God's word has to rebuke sometimes in the pulpit. That's not the only thing he does, but he needs to do that occasionally. And the pastor who's afraid to do that isn't taking seriously 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 isn't taking seriously God's word. A wise person who fears God, who is sharing scriptural truth that is God-breathed, will occasionally rebuke others. You might say, Pastor Tony, I don't put those controversial Bible passage on my Instagram feed. I just do those things that are affirming of other people. That's foolish. It's not giving people the whole counsel of God. And the people who only want those things that are offensive or uh, affirming and not offensive, they're fools. We want the whole counsel of God. The book of Proverbs is quite clear on this matter. And this is one of those places where, I, you know, the old man, Solomon, writing in Ecclesiastes, he's in lockstep with young man Solomon writing in the book of Proverbs. It's like they're writing the same stuff. 
And the basic idea behind everything that he's saying here is this. Okay? Everybody listening? It's this. Be teachable. Church, be teachable. You might say, Pastor Tony, I'm 65 years old. All right, be a teachable 65-year-old. We got some here at our church. You might say, Pastor Tony, I'm 16 years old. The world tells me I'm supposed to be haughty. The world tells me I'm supposed to put forth opinions that I don't really understand. Well, tell the world to go suck a lemon and be teachable. What's the Bible say? Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what God calls us to. Whether you're 16 or 65 or somewhere in between, be teachable. Look at verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Like nettles under a kettle is the cackling of fools. You ever tried to heat up a fire by throwing thorns inside of it? It's a, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. I mean, it's a lot of, you know, fire at first and light and noise. But it doesn't last. Don't try to warm your food with that. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And, then, and I think there's an allusion here to the sound. You know, you throw thorns on the fire and it's like... <laughs> it's like the cackling of fools just laugh 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 it quickly dissipates it it doesn't last it's short-lived it's fleeting it's vanity but a teachable heart and a wise demeanor has lasting value look at verse 7 surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart in other words don't just be teachable be moral be upright even if it drives you into madness be upright. Don't accept a bribe. You know, I've been, I've mentioned this before. I've been trying to follow like this Jordan Peterson phenomenon in our country and in North America. And I'm trying to make sense of it. Like, how does this guy who just says some basic virtues, how does he become so popular in our day? And why do people love him so much? And I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but I listened to a podcast this last week that kind of made sense of it to me. I was listening to this pastor in Idaho, a man named Doug Wilson. And he said, the reason that Jordan Peterson has become so popular in our day is because North America needs a dad. All these kids growing up without dads and they do all this stupid stuff and they think their opinions are so brilliant and no dad in their left life ever stood up and said, son, daughter, that's stupid. Stop that. And so in that absence in our world, Jordan Peterson has to get up and say, that's stupid. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, thanks. And we, and we think it's brilliant. North America needs debt. We need people to say, we need people to rebuke others. And let me just, just to, I'm always trying to reinforce this here at Harvest. Dads, you stand in the gap for your kids. Okay? I don't pastor all of North America. I pastor Harvest Decatur and the dads that are here. Dads, you be that person. It says, son or daughter, that's not wise. You teach them. And sons and daughters, children of Harvest Decatur, you be teachable. You be teachable. Don't be like these idiot kids running around, throwing their opinions about, and they don't know what they're talking about. 
That's not helping anybody. And while we're on it, this subject, kids be teachable. Dads, you be teachable. Moms, you be teachable. Granddads, you be teachable. Grandmas, you be teachable. You know, I've prayed in my life several times. I've prayed, Lord, keep me teachable because I'd rather be dead than unteachable. And that might seem kind of extreme, but I'm serious about that. I never want to be that older man who lazily and haughtily says, can't teach an old dog new tricks. I don't ever want to be like that. And I'm not even that old. That's debatable, I know, for some of you. But, but I have prayed out loud, Lord, keep teaching this old dog new tricks. Be teachable. Write this down as number five. Here's a better than pursuit in your life. Number five, this is a tough one. Brace yourself. A patient spirit. A patient spirit. Solomon says in verse 8, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. I was listening to a podcast this last week. It's a podcast about sports. It's called Pardon, Pardon the Interruption. It's, it's these two ex-journalists, Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. There was something really insightful in this podcast as I was listening. Michael Wilbon told asked Tony Kornheiser, do you miss writing for a newspaper? Because they both used to be newspaper journalists and writing about all these sporting events. And Kornheiser, he said this, he said, no, I don't miss writing for a newspaper. I miss having written something for a newspaper. Y'all recognize the difference? He doesn't miss the work. He misses accomplishing something because he knows that's, that's worthwhile because, you know, anything worthwhile is, takes work. It's hard. It's hard to, it's harder to finish something to begin something, right? Don't ask somebody what book they're reading. Ask somebody what book they finished because that's not the same. It's easier to start something than to finish it. I'll just say this, and I've said this before, be leery, harvesticator, of the big talker, of the flatterer, the person who's always giving you his or her resume. Be wary of the person that starts stuff but never finishes it. And also, speaking of patience, be wary of the person who is quick to anger. Look at verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Anybody need to confess some anger this morning before the Lord, before we take communion? Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. The book of Proverbs says this. This is a verse that's written on my whiteboard at home in my office. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Did y'all hear that? The vexation of a fool is known at once. <laughs> but 
but the prudent ignores an insult. How's that going for you, Harvesticator? When was the last time you ignored an insult? Somebody insulted you and you just said, let it go. K sarah sarah, let it be. Proverbs also says this, whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. That's written in my home office as well on the whiteboard. A cool spirit. How's that going for you? I don't know, Pastor Tony. I got a hot temper. Okay, well, should you? I mean, is that good? I can't help it. I'm Irish. I got to say what I think. Should you? Actually, you can help it. Actually, God wants you to help it. Actually, God gave you his Holy Spirit so that he might produce in you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. It's this little old thing we like to call in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. How's that going for you? Write this down as number six. Here's a six better than pursuit in your life. A wise disposition. Say not, verse 10. Why were the former days better than these? (laughs) For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. In other words, don't be nostalgic about the days gone by. Anybody ever tempted to do that? Put it more precisely, here's what Solomon is saying. Don't let nostalgia rob you of the present. That's not wise. I remember the good old days, Pastor Tony, before we had social media, before we had smartphones, when my favorite guy was in the White House. Those were the good old days, not now. That's not wise. There's no time machine. You're not going back there. Can I just confess something this morning? What time is it? It's 1030. Look at that. It's time to confess. Pastor Tony, confession time. I do this. I told my small group not that long ago, we were having a conversation about this. And I said, 1988. 1988. That was a good year. Ronald Reagan was in the White House. All my joints worked properly. I was 10 years old. I was a basketball superstar back then. I was 10. I didn't have a computer. You know, my dad, my dad had that, had an IBM 286. Y'all remember those things with the floppy drives and you had to type stuff out in DOS? I'd rather eat squash than spend time on that thing. <laughs> that thing was r- ridiculous. And I didn't bother with it. I had, a, I had a dog named Tasha. 1988. My biggest decision in 1988, you know what it was? Whether I should go to school in my shorts, my jams, as I call them, or my acid wash jeans, which I loved. I love those jeans. And I was listening to Michael W. Smith. I'm a portable Walkman, and life was good. What was I talking about? (laughs) Don't be wistful about days gone by. I heard once, 
I heard once that talk about the good old days is a combination of bad memory and a good imagination. That's 1998, 1988 for me, a bad memory and a good imagination. And I think that's right. And I think the bigger, the bigger issue is this. God has created you for such a time as this. 2021 with all of its foibles. That's where he has, remember the book of Esther? Remember what Mordecai told Esther? Such a time as this. That's why you're here. You're here for a reason. God, God didn't make a mistake putting you where you are right now at the age that you are. For such a time as this. So don't reminisce about better days gone by. There's no wisdom in that. Be present. Be where you're at. Use the time that you have now for God's glory. You know why? Because you'll be dead soon. You'll be dead soon. So don't waste your time reminiscing about old days. There'll be time enough for count when the deal is done. Remember that Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler? You never count your money while you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. You can count your money when you're in heaven. It's not the best analogy, but sorry. <laughs> Jesus said it better than Kenny Rogers. Each day has enough trouble of its own, right? So be present. Don't be wistful about the past don't be overly anticipatory about the future. Live in the moment that you have. Focus on the here and now. Warren Wiersbe said it this way. You can read this on the screen. He said, carpe diem, seize the day. This does not mean that we shouldn't learn from the past or prepare for the future because both are important. It means that we must live today in the will of God and not be paralyzed by yesterday or hypnotized by tomorrow. That is so wise. Don't be paralyzed by yesterday. Don't be hypnotized by tomorrow. Make the most of each day. Solomon says this in verse 11. He says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves life of him who has it. It's not that money is bad. Solomon circles back with money here and it's not that money is bad. Money isn't bad. It's dangerous. But it's not bad. There's some good aspects to money. Money offers you a kind of protection. It keeps you from going hungry. It keeps you well-clothed and well-fed. It keeps the creditors away. But even better than money is wisdom, says Solomon. Solomon asked for wisdom, and God threw money in with it. Because wisdom protects you from stupidity. Wisdom keeps you from being wasteful and being taken advantage of and becoming ignorant. And, and wisdom, by the way, it's not just... Knowledge, it's applied knowledge. It's not just book smarts, it's street smarts. That's what biblical wisdom is. Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than the gain from silver and her profit is better than gold. Go after wisdom. Go after wise disposition. The book of Proverbs also says how much better it is to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding than choice silver. And that's because Proverbs 2, 6, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you, let me say this, Harvest Decatur, if you know God and you fear God and you follow God, you will become wise as you age. You will. God has clearly presented that as a, 
as an option for us. If you choose God, if you follow God, if you fear God, you will grow wise. You will get wiser. And you want that. I read an article this last week by the late J.I. Packer on the subject of Ecclesiastes. Packer talks about how this book changed his life as a young Christian teenager. It actually helped him to tame his youthful cynicism. And he said this about the five books of the wisdom, uh, five wisdom books in the Old Testament. You can read this on the screen. He said, it's been said that Psalms teaches us how to worship. Proverbs, how to behave. Job, how to suffer. Song of Solomon, how to love. Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live. How? With realism and reverence, with humility and restraint, coolly and contentedly in wisdom and in joy. That's what Ecclesiastes teaches. I agree with Packer, but let me ask one let me add one more component to that. It also helps us to live with a resolved acceptance of God's sovereignty. Write that down as number seven in your notes. Here's a final better than pursuit in your life. A resolved acceptance of God's sovereignty. Verse 13, consider the works of God who can make straight what God has made crooked. In other words, what God has done, man can't undo. Don't even try. There's a great scene in the movie Rudy. Remember that movie Rudy? Notre Dame, the guy's too short to be a football player, but he really wants to be a football player, so he goes to his priest to try to, you know, can you pray for me? Help, help me figure out how to get on the football team. And the priest says this incredibly wise thing. He says, son, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with two incontrovertible facts. Number one, there is a God. And number two, I'm not God. Brilliant. 35 years of study. There is a God and I'm not God. Why does, and you might ask questions like, why does God allow some people to die early and others, even people who are horrible and, and abuse their bodies? How do they live so long? I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. The secret things belong to the Lord. Why do good pastors like Jonathan Edwards and Robert Murray McShane die early and bad pastors like Henry Emerson Fosdick live till they're 91? I don't know. I don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Why did God let my mother-in-law's sister die in childhood? And yet my mother-in-law lived into her 70s. I don't know. I don't know. And I'm thankful that I don't have to know the answer to that question. I can just rest in God's sovereignty. Verse 14, in the days of prosperity, be joyful, says Solomon. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that the man may not find out anything that will be after him. In other words, when life is good, be joyful, but don't get cocky. Okay, you might say this morning, look, I'm having a pretty good time right now, Pastor Tony. Good, okay, enjoy your life, enjoy your prosperity, don't get cocky, it might not last. And then also if you're going through adversity, when life is hard, don't think that God is trying to punish you. 
He's not trying to punish you. He's trying to shape you. God made both days, the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. And he uses them for his purposes in your life. Just rest in that sovereignty. Just rest in the goodness of that. God's going to do what God wants to do. And I, I don't have control of that. It's actually a great peace that comes from, from a resolved acceptance of God's sovereignty. I want you to experience that. And I know how it is sometimes when you're going through hard times. You, you might wonder, like, why is God allowing this suffering in my life? Maybe some of you are in that right now. Why the suffering, Pastor Tony? Why this issue right now? I heard Tim Keller say once that whenever we go through deep trials and hard times, we have trouble understanding why. Why does God allow the things in my life that he allows? And we can't always answer that why. Why did God let me go through that hardship? Why did he let me go through that loss of a loved one? Why did he let me go through that divorce? Why did he let me go through that job loss? Why did he let me go through that battle with scoliosis as a kid? And Keller says this as an answer. He says, even though we don't know what the reason for suffering is, we know what it isn't. It isn't because he doesn't love us. It can't be because he doesn't love us. Do y'all hear that? Do you know how important that is? When you're going through hard times? Why is God allowing this thing in my life, Tony? Why, why, why is God allowing this suffering right now? I don't know, but I know this. It's not because he doesn't love you. How do you know that, Tony? How do you know that he loves us? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. That's how I know that. So let me, let me lay on this plane right now before we take communion. You might say, why did God let me go through that horrible thing, Pastor Tony? Why am I suffering so acutely right now? I don't know. But I know that God loves you. And I know this. I know this better than I know anything else in the world. That God sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for your sin so that when you die, you can live with him for eternity in a reality without suffering forever and ever and ever. I know that. And we can rest in his sovereignty. We can rest in his love for us. Right? Pray with me.
Lord, it's a fallen, broken world that we live in. And life is hard. And death is inevitable for us. Lord, we're not going to ignore those gritty realisms. We're not going to pretend they don't exist. We're not going to pretend that people don't suffer in our world. They do. There might be some some people really struggling this morning, Lord. We don't always know why you do the things that you do. Sometimes in hindsight, we can see that you're shaping us and conforming us into your image, and that's good. We'd take the easy route if we could. But Lord, there are times too that we don't always see why you do the things that you do, what your purpose is. And yet through it all and in it all, we know that you love us. Because you sent Jesus Christ, our Savior, to die for our sin. And if you didn't love us, you wouldn't have done that. And Lord, we're here this morning to bask in that love. To remember what Jesus has done for us. Bless this time, Lord. We remember Christ the body broken on the cross for our sins. In the bread, we remember the blood shed for our sins in the cup. Bless this time of worship. Bless this time of remembrance. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.